I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? No time in history has anyone had access to these kinds of technologies to understand the biology at that level that we can right. do now. That's a huge, huge difference maker. And so that's one of the ways that certainly our tools are being used others as well. Like when you're generating a vaccine, what kind of effect it's having on, you know, on the patient, on their, uh, on their biology, on their, on their immune system. And so we can, we can see right. this at a level that we just could not even contemplate even a few years ago. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, and I am back from my quote-unquote holiday, sheltering place here in my house in Oakland. Can't say it was the most relaxing or restful vacation, but we're all healthy, so I'm going to still count it as a win. And now we're back with another podcast. And depending on how the next day goes, this will hopefully be the first of two episodes headed your way in the next few days, so just keep your eye on the feed. On this pod, though, we have a very interesting guest, Serge Saxonov. He is an entrepreneur who fled the Soviet Union as it collapsed. He ended up in New York, and these days he runs 10X Genomics, a maker of a very powerful machine that allows researchers to see down to the single cellular level. And if you don't know what that really means, it's fine. I didn't really either. But Saxonoff is very good at explaining why this is a big deal, especially as we race to find a vaccine for COVID-19. So 10X's machines are being used around the world in labs who are dissecting the virus, trying to figure out how it works and thus how we might try to attack it. So you can think of their machines making this up but think of it like if you saw some security camera footage of a bad guy robbing a store or something and it was really grainy maybe it was dark whatever um you can have that or you can have a perfectly crystal clear portrait mode from your apple iphone picture of the bad guy that's kind of the difference from what was previous previously possible and what's what you can do on 10x machines more or less saxonov also, he took the company public last year, and as of this week, it's worth about $6 billion. And again, this company was founded in 2015, about five years ago, so not bad going. One of its early backers was SoftBank, which, of course, is now itself desperately attempting to stave off its own implosion. 
point is there are lots of strands here and I think you'll really enjoy it. So via Zoom, as always these days, I give you Serge Saxonoff, founder and CEO of 10X Genomics. Perhaps we could start just a brief description of what 10X Genomics is for the people out there in the world who may have never heard of you. Mm. And then we can kind of dive into what you guys are up to now and kind of the backstory and all of that. Yeah. So we build tools, products to help scientists understand biology to kind of to make a concrete think of we, we built an instrument, think of it like an espresso machine. And so our customers buy them from us and then they buy cartridges to put into that instrument to run do various measured different kinds of things about biology. They're biological samples, like right. a sample of blood or you know, a piece of tissue, like a piece of skin or, or a cancer, or things like that. We kind of developed a set of technologies over the years that allow people like scientists to see things they could not see before, like really, really high level of resolution and scale, measure many, many biological objects like DNA, RNA, proteins, cells, tissues, things like that. And so they're able to make discoveries they could never do before. And so we have like well over 700 publications, like papers that have come out of scientific labs, our customers, using our products to make those discoveries. And across many different areas of biology, oncology, like cancer, uh, neuroscience, infectious disease, just about every area of biology, the fundamental discoveries in like top, top journals. Effectively, what you're doing is allowing much greater resolution of what researchers might be looking at and trying to find. Yeah, I mean, that's at the highest level, that's that's the right way to look at it. That's what we set out to do. What we're particularly well known for is this idea of single cell analysis, ability to look at individual cells in very, very large numbers. So taking kind of your, again, your tissue or your, your blood, your blood sample, and then measuring individual cells across thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of cells in that sample. So like going deep into each cell. So that gives you that kind of resolution. Is this another way to think about it is kind of delivering on the promise of genomics. I'm, you know, it's been a long time since the human genome was mapped and it was, yeah. there was an immediate rush of um, sky high expectations about what this was going to do to healthcare. And what we ended up with was 23 and me. And I know that's <laughs> obviously a simplification, but it doesn't. It feels like it's been a much slower burn. Uh, yeah, so I have a lot of thoughts on that, and uh, I would say that, <laughs> look, the fundamental, the, kind of the crux of the matter is that we actually understand very little biology, and we continuously underestimate just how little we understand. <laughs> so doing the human genome was absolutely like necessary, incredibly valuable, all kinds of like it's just a foundation for so much science. But the problem is that it's only the first step and there's like way, way, way more to go. So, you know, people ask about whether it's like, was it sort of, was it overhyped? Was it like the wrong thing to do or whatever? Like, no, I mean, it's absolutely the right thing to do. And it produced enormous amounts of value. It's just that the challenge of understanding biology is so much greater than what we had necessarily thought. And so kind of the way that, you know, we see the world is like, well, okay, so you map out the genome, but now the question is like, what do all those genes do? Right. (laughs) So that, and that for sure, that's as that's what we at 10x uh, hope to enable the world to do and just actually understand all of that downstream biology and how it all works together which ultimately is how we will right. get up cures got you so there's a there's a little problem out there in the world right now yeah, um, yes 
With COVID, so can you talk about what you're just describing applies to COVID and kind of what you guys are doing and kind of your view of the landscape uh, and getting back to that first point of like return to normalcy kind of feels like vaccine has to be a part of that and kind of where we are on yeah. the path. Yeah. So I would say it's actually, it's been like incredibly, it's been fascinating and in many ways inspiring to see what's been happening over the last month, month and a half in the world of science. Uh, we've, you know, in our case, a lot of our research, like a lot of our customers were actually getting shut down throughout March and, you know, for some, some in Asia earlier back in January, February. But a lot of them are actually working and reorienting their research toward toward COVID. Just like people who work in all kinds of other problems are all sort of now focused on the one thing. It's yeah. actually like, it's pretty inspiring. Like I don't, I can't think of any example in like history where there's been so much brain power focused on one single problem. Now, going back to sort of your original question, like how do we get back to normalcy? What is it sort of, what does it take? So yes, ultimately you need a vaccine. I think that's how, or you need to get to immunity, kind of population level immunity, yeah. which means either you know enough people get it or enough people get a vaccine. And uh, you know, vaccines generally take time. You know, this is like a that yeah. it's, it's it's science <laughs> underlying it. There's like a biology that you need to figure out. The typical uh, timeframes are measured in years, two plus years. I think, you know, we're looking here given the amount of focus here. There's reason to be more optimistic but you know i wouldn't bet that it's going to take any less than 18 months let's say to 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 get to a vaccine i just wanted to ask mm -hmm. an, uh, on that point so i was reading something that uh an interview with larry brilliant from google mm -hmm. org etc and he was saying that he thinks though a winning vaccine will be developed sometime in the next two to four months then there's testing there's efficacy testing safety testing industrial scale up and that gets you to the 12 to 18 month thing but he was basically saying which is what you just said it's like it appears that a vaccine is doable and i'm trying to understand why everybody seems so confident that that is in fact a reachable goal is there something about this biologically that says okay well you know it's going to take us time to figure out x y and z about this virus but we'll know how to attack it at some point with a vaccine well, so I would say, you know, we want to be a little careful. I don't think we can say with 100% certainty that you can get a vaccine, but I think you can yeah. have a high degree of confidence just based on the fact that vaccination works against such a large number of pathogens. I think it's more of an empirical question uh, than kind of a question of fundamental, maybe fundamental science right now. But I think there's reasons to be confident because we have developed vaccines for a huge range of pathogens. There's definitely places in the news that could potentially accelerate the development and really get things sooner. And, you know, Bill Gates is investing in kind of preemptive scale up of manufacturing so that you do not stack that time frame on top of initially proving the safety and efficacy so you right. can get going immediately. So there's ways to, to shorten it. I just, um, you know, the, the bar is pretty high. First, we need to understand the science to figure out like what that vaccine would be and then uh, you need to prove to yourself that it's safe and that bar is pretty high because you're yeah. going to be giving it to just about everyone, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that it's actually effective because, again, you're going to be giving it to everyone. You're going to be making assumptions, all kinds of hugely, hugely economically expensive assumptions based on that. Yeah, for sure. It has struck me since this is kind of all blown up that everybody 
in the kind of epidemiology world and in this kind of science world is be like, okay, we're get, you know, we will get a vaccine. There seems to be a, a level of confidence there that to me is a bit surprising, but I don't know anything about uh, I, vaccine development yeah. or anything, but it just does seem like it's almost a given. It's a question of, is it 18 months? Is it two years? Is it 12 months? Whatever it may I be. I think it's reasonable. Just, I think again, based on our, sort of knowledge of historic empirical evidence what we've done in the past and our knowledge. I mean, this is what the immune system is kind of supposed to do. I mean, on top of it, look, we've got, again, we've got tools like ours and uh, other companies that make that no time in history has anyone had access to these kinds of technologies to understand the biology at the level that we can right. do now. That's a huge, huge difference maker. And so that's one of the ways that certainly our tools are being used others as well. Like when you're generating a vaccine, what kind of effect it's having on you know, on the patient, on their, uh, on their biology, on their, on their immune system. And so we can, we can right. see this at a level that we just could not even contemplate even a few years ago. So what are you guys up to on this front? Our, our goal is to provide, again, these tools and technologies to the, to the maximum extent possible to all the, to our customers who are working on this. And uh, again, there has been a sea change in just a few weeks of just everyone orienting their research programs to mm. this problem. It's almost like a kind of a Manhattan project, but globally yeah it, like. it is uh, it's interesting right because it's not like it's not centrally coordinated in any way but yeah. it's uh, everyone has the same goal and so everyone is kind of all of a sudden rowing in the same direction maybe independently uh maybe not perfectly kind of in communication with each other but uh, everyone is going in that uh, in that direction so yeah our goal is to move as fast like as fast as we can to satisfy any customer concern they need an instrument we have a lot of customers placing instruments in uh, biosafety labs. Once an instrument goes in there, it doesn't come back out. And yeah. uh, every time a customer asks for that, we like, like we do whatever we can to help them with that. And that, you know, obviously whatever help we can in terms of interpreting results or helping them with their experiments, we try to do that. Are you guys an essential service or are you guys also on lockdown? Or yeah, we're in the, yeah, no, we, yeah, we're an essential service because again, our, like, our products are being used to, to understand the disease and like just about every aspect of it and to develop vaccines to develop therapeutics. Right. But yeah, that has been definitely a pretty tough period because we had to ramp down pretty quickly. Number of priorities, make sure the employees are safe and uh, make sure yeah. that everyone feels safe and uh, taken care of. But yeah, we do need to keep our production going. And so that's our second imperative is to make sure that we can keep uh, a product to keep going to our customers. And uh, so we have a reduced crew in manufacturing operations that keeps producing the product and uh, some R&D functions around that to help support it. And then also, you know, there's more products that we have in our pipeline that are going to be, uh, we see as being important for these efforts. So uh, we're also trying to push those forward as well. It's a balance and it's hard. I was going to say, because are you at the office right now? I'm actually right now at the office, yes. Because yeah, I was just thinking, looking at your background, which looks very office <laughs> That's like the first office background I've seen on any of my, I don't know how many dozens of Zoom calls I've done now. Everybody, it's usually like in some kind of awkward corner of somebody's house that they've set up as an impromptu uh, yeah, office. Yeah, most, I mean, I, this is the first time I've been back in, in a while. But uh, <laughs> Oh, really? So, I mean, we try to minimize the amount of interface and interactions we have here. But my, my house um, is not so that much more exciting, I have to say. <laughs> I'd love to go back and just get a sense of like how you came to start this company. Like what were you doing before? How did you end up starting a, the journey? Yeah. I, I don't know how far back you want me to go. but uh, Are you from Russia? Yeah. No, so I was born So I was born in Moscow, the Russia. But yeah. I grew up in a place called Tajikistan in uh, Central Asia. Oh, yeah. And emigrated. my family emigrated out when I was 13. Went to New York. 
that's where we ended up and uh, yep. <laughs> lived in uh, Washington Heights initially for those who know the geography there. So, yeah, it a, yeah, yeah. It was interesting. It was the early 90s. I went to high school at, in the Bronx. So you came out right out, right as the USSR was Yeah, I was falling apart. Exactly. Apart. Exactly. It was a really weird time too. It's like it actually gives you a sense of how I think one of the things I learned, I mean, going through that period and also just growing up in the USSR, you sort of uh, learn that you can't you can't assume that things that the way things are, they're going to continue perpetually. What's really interesting, this whole experience for me is, is like it showed me just how complacent we were about kind of everything because I was born in 77 mm-hmm. and kind of at least in my adult life. It's, you know, you had 2008, which was traumatic in different ways and you had 2001, which was traumatic, but kind of everything, at least from my experience, was rolled along with some kind of changes around the yeah, edges. Exactly. History of the world is very different, right? Like. Yeah, so for me, it was, you know, if you had to ask anyone back in like 1987 or something, the USSR is going to be around forever because it's it's like my experience has been around forever. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it wasn't there at all and everything changed. It was a good thing that that changed. But like, uh, again, the unpredictability of history was pretty striking. And we kind of internalized that. So, yeah, so my, uh, you know, kind of my story is like I was, uh, uh, went to high school in, in New York. That was interesting, <laughs> kind of growing up learning English and all, all of that. And then went to college. Uh, I studied applied math, but I was just always interested in biology. Just happened to be sort of not as good in lab and had more ability with math. And <laughs> so that was, uh, and I ended up initially pre-med and realized that I was, uh, like my parents wanted me to be a doctor. And at some point early on in college, I realized it was just like I was just terrified of kind of knowing what I was going to have to do for the next 20 years. <laughs> um, and then there was a particular moment I was kind of, I remember it. So this, my advisor that I was doing research, whose lab I was doing research at the time, was also an entrepreneur, like he had started companies, was a pretty famous scientist. And as I was kind of thinking about what I want to do with my life, I went to a panel, it was an entrepreneurship panel. There was a point at which uh, someone asked a question, like, well, you guys are talking about, you know, it's so great to start run companies, start companies, but what about your sort of life work balance and how do you have, how do you manage other priorities? And one of the people on the panel kind of answered, started answering the question and was kind of talking about how it could be challenging, et cetera. And then uh, my advisor just kind of cut in and he was kind of like that. Let me just interject. And I would just say, I would just want to say that if you're asking that question, you're probably not fit to be an entrepreneur. And it's a pretty blunt kind of way of saying it. And it's like, I totally Wally, that's the name of uh, my advisor, had kind of that way with words. Uh, but it also somehow it's really struck a chord with me. I was like this sort of idea of being having an all-encompassing mission and goal of building, yeah. like committing yourself 100% to something. I think that was kind of a trigger point for me where I started thinking is like, yeah, you know, building companies would be something I would be, it would really resonate with me. And that's something that I really want to do. That's part of the reason I ultimately came out to the West Coast for grad school. I did uh, I did a, bo- a PhD in something called bioinformatics, so computer science and uh, statistics and gotcha. biology. Was that Stanford? Yeah, or that Berkeley was Stanford. Or... And then, the kind of as I uh, as I was finishing up my PhD, I had a bunch of ideas about what I wanted to do, and a lab mate, a, a 
friend of mine and I started talking about thinking about the world of the future where genome sequencing is going to be more prevalent. How are you going to yeah. tell people about their genomes? And and so we started thinking about starting a company. And at that time, we kind of ended up meeting up with Ann Wojcicki and Linda Avey, who were about to start 23andMe. And so you Gosh, mentioned 20. Yeah. So that was uh, that was like yeah, an yeah. original founding team of, uh, of 23andMe coming out of grad school. So that was my... You yeah. were. Um, <laughs> and so that was, again, that was back in the day. Like we are, you know, again, early days were the very first ones to be interpreting human genomes at any yeah. kind of scale. It was a lot of... It was fun. It was very interesting. It was exciting. It was creating new ground. The The thing there that was a little, that I felt ultimately somewhat constrained is that we're relying on technology that was developed by other companies. And I was, I think that's still mm. kind of the right business approach fundamentally for what we wanted to do. But it places constraints, right? In terms of what can yeah. you actually learn. And so that kind of led me on the path to like kind of go upstream and think about what are the tools that we actually have, what are the technologies that we have to measure, to be able to measure and manipulate biology. And so I joined a company, it was called Quantalife, it was started by a, a close friend of mine, it was a co-founder, I joined as a- How long were you at, how long were you at 23? Four years. And so I joined an early startup where we were building an instrument to measure DNA very precisely. So it was a very different kind of environment, yeah. very different, it was, it was a lot of fun. That company ended up getting acquired by a larger company, but there is where I met some of the colleagues that ultimately with whom I started 10X later. So Quantalife was acquired in 2011. I left it in 2012 and then middle of 2012, I got together with uh, Ben Heinsen, who was the chief science officer and the co-founder of the previous company of Quantalife. And he's a chemist by training. Again, my background is computational biology. So I'm kind of from the other side, but we worked really well together at Quantalife. In fact, it was really, really fun because it was like the kinds of things that he can come up with sometimes would just feel like magic to me. I was just like, hey, Ben, is such and such possible? He's just like, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, it would feel so productive working together. Right. And so, yeah, so we were kind of like at that point, middle of 2012, we're unemployed and kind of started try, trying to think about what we want to do next and started talking about different ideas and kind of where the world was going to go uh, in, the, in, in the coming years and realizing that a lot of problems that kind of needed addressing really came down to some sort of core features. You needed to have a lot more resolution and a lot more scale to be able to measure different elements of biology. And so we set out to develop a kind of a technology that could deliver many products to enable, but on the basis of much higher resolution, much higher scale. Right. That was the start, 2012. And again, we only, we just had ideas. I mean, literally we were in the coffee shop and started kind of talking about uh, drawing our sketches in a notebook. After that, you know, had a, uh, uh, a third founder joined us, again, uh, our colleague from the previous company. His background is in hardware and mechanical engineering. So from the very beginning, 10X, and this is probably one of the most defining sort of characteristics of the company, is that we're very multidisciplinary, very different areas right. kind of coming together. And we had, from the very beginning, we had a lot of kind of mutual respect for each other's areas of expertise. And we tried to nurture that as we build the company through the years and kind of as we added more and more, more and more to, to the company. I know you guys went public last mm-hmm. was about six months ago, roughly. Yeah, it feels like a totally different like world that. now. But yes, we went public in uh, on <laughs> September 13th of 2019. Right. How was the experience of raising money for, because obviously everybody says, you know, hardware is hard, biology is harder. <laughs> and obviously there's 2012, but then the whole Theranos debacle, you know, yeah. was kind of slowly growing in the background but i guess that at that time was probably more the hype cycle was it difficult to raise money for uh, I mean, yeah so, it so it's interesting yeah so, so for us initially kind of when we were raising money 
it was definitely not a great climate. 2012, 2013, some since 2014, because the kind of thing we're doing was just like hard, like building hardware, yeah. chemistry is like physical stuff, right? It just takes a lot of money and the outcome is kind of uncertain. People were definitely not, most investors were not super excited about the area for sure. Yeah. At the same time, some of the, like we ended up getting like the best investors in, in life sciences and healthcare. And I think they just kind of look at things from first principles. So the, the people who are sort of not necessarily following the, the herd, we are actually really fortunate with our investors in the VC years to get the right people aboard. We definitely were sort of outside of the mainstream of what people were raising. In terms of Theranos, they came a bit later. You know, if you remember, like Theranos never raised money from any VCs that actually knew what they were doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it didn't like, yes. yeah, it was kind of like we never, never touched on us at all. Yeah. How much did you guys, how much did you guys raise? Uh, in private rounds, it was just, yeah. just about 250 million through all the different right. rounds. Yeah. The most difficult ones are always kind of the, the early ones. Those are most uncertain. I mean, when we're raising our seed money, which is not exactly a venture round, it was kind of friends and, you know, former investors, uh, we literally had 10 slides. That was the entirety of the company. It's a slide deck. Right. We had a slide that uh, showed, kind of outlined all the problems we had to figure out. And our investors were asking us, like, also, oh, how are you guys going to do this? And we're like, we actually don't know. Like, that's why we need the money. So it was a pretty risky kind of thing early on. You know, in contrast, when we were raising the very sort of the later rounds, like Series D and uh, then going public, that could be a lot more based on metrics and our revenues were just going yeah. like really, really rapidly. And we could see lots and lots of evidence from the market. Uh, and so that, that was a right. very kind of different experience. Did SoftBank invest, was that the vision fund? That was the vision fund, wasn't it? Uh, it ended up being the vision fund. The initial investment right. was not the vision fund. And it was, we were actually their first life science investment. And they came in uh, as part of our Series C, not a huge amount. And then later they transferred that investment, but it was considerably later into the vision fund. Was that just like everything else, or what did do you have a like a, a Masa, Masayoshi Son story I, like the others, where it's like <laughs> I had a meeting in a lobby and we talked for fifteen minutes and he gave me a billion dollars? Yeah, you know, like I, my experience is actually totally not that. It's it's funny because I, and I, I never met with Masa. Uh, there was uh, uh, the the person leading the investment was uh, Deep Nishar, who is one of the people up there. He was a uh, um, he was at Google, he was at LinkedIn uh, before that, and he is phenomenally smart and uh, and uh, has been great. So, like, my experience has been actually quite different. I mean, he, he really kind of got, got deep onto understanding biology and life sciences. Right. Um, and, yeah, we were, I mean, there were some dynamics. They always wanted to invest more than what we really had room <laughs> for. Uh, and so, yeah. and I think we sort of maintained our... Um, uh, that that uh, yeah kind of did not go unnecessarily bigger than we needed to. You, you didn't go real real big, yeah. Uh, not in terms of raising the money because we didn't really need it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then just circling back to to where you are today with the co with the kind of the race for the COVID vaccine. Can you give a sense of kind of where your machines are being used? Is it kind of all over the world? Is it by states? Is it by pharmaceutical companies? I don't know if there's like a kind of a flavor of that you can give. Yeah, no. So like generally they're used, they're like everywhere, right? Uh, global. Um, most of our focus has been on academic research. So like institutions, big, uh, whether it's like big academic centers, uh, genome centers or academic hospitals, 
or smaller labs all around all around the world, all around the country, but also biotechs and pharma. Those are a smaller fraction of our customer base, but definitely um, they they are not an insignificant fraction. You know, it's interesting because we we do have customers in China and uh, quite a bit, and this is where we started seeing the effects of COVID first, where all of a sudden there's sort of a reorientation of research. You know, people ordering products. When you saw that. When did you start seeing that? Was that December? No, it was later. January? It was January, February. I mean, there's a lag, right? For us, it's sort of like once people realize the seriousness of that, and once they realize, like, actually, we need to understand like what is going on with biology here. Then, then they start ramping up, and then they ramp up really fast. Right, and this is probably a d- dumb question, but why does resolution matter? If you're thinking about using COVID as an example, yeah. Why does being able to see this on kind of a single cell yeah. level matter? Well, so, right. So what turns out is that all of biology is actually based around the fundamental unit of biology is the cell, the single cell. And all the different cells do all kinds of different things. And this is something that we didn't really see, like really until a few years ago. We sort of knew, but just how much, how they're all doing different things is just something that's been a revelation to the world and how much of that biology is, is happening there. And so, you know, the virus is going to enter particular types of cells that have particular types of receptors, and it's going to do particular types of things in those particular types of cells. And that's, that's what we're learning across the board. And then the immune system itself is like this huge, like really complex orchestra of all kinds of different cells doing all kinds of different things. And that's where like, you like, you just don't, the thing becomes a black box when you're not looking at it at the single cell level, you, you can only measure very fragmentary parts of you know of the proverbial elephant right 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 um, i'm just trying to kind of conceptualize this in my head so like single cell that's how does that compare to i don't know say five years ago or 10 years ago in terms of what we were able to see and understand about say how a vaccine works or it doesn't work because it or is it kind of like you kind of throw a bunch of stuff against the wall, see what works, make sure it's safe. And then you're like, well, I'm not really sure how this is working or where this is attaching or what it's doing. We just know it's working and now we can prove it safe and now we can put it out. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good way to look at it. I mean, it's not quite as extreme as that because we could measure some things, but basically it's a lot more guesswork and hoping for the best and testing a lot of things until something works and then kind of testing it to, to, to make sure. Whereas now you can mechanistically understand why things are happening, what is actually going on, why some patients, like what is the difference between patients that respond, that are responding well and the patients that are that have severe symptoms. And I mean, we're, like, we're actually yeah. seeing these. I mean, there are dozens of papers now coming out of, initially out of China, and now they're appearing in other places where people are actually seeing very clearly that, okay, this is what's happening in the lungs of uh, mild cases and the, the immune system is producing these kinds of cells to be fighting the virus. And clearly the immune system is like in a very specific way is doing something different in the severe cases. We, we can actually tell what kinds of cells and when they're present that the virus is infecting. What is it that's allowing it to infect some cells and not others? Kind of look at the rate, how, does the, how do the cells the cells that get infected uh, respond something that you could never see before single cell analysis because all of that right. just gets washed out. Is there work being also done on just kind of asymptomatic people? Cause that's, uh, I was talking with some the other day and, and the kind of what's so insidious about this situation is that, you know, it sounds like a lot of people are asymptomatic, but can still shed the virus cool. and spread it. And it sounds like that's a large number of cases. Yep. 
but surely if you can look drill down to that single cell level on extreme cases, mild cases, or asymptomatic cases, and maybe there's some kind of commonalities there that you can start to try to kind of mimic with drugs. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that makes perfect sense. I mean, I don't know how much people are looking at asymptomatics right now because you first need to detect them, right? And you need testing infrastructure, but I'm, that's absolutely, that's coming. And that's precisely right. Like you kind of see, you want to figure out like, why is it in the patients that, or people that don't have, get symptoms? How do you map that biology into the patients that get symptoms, right? That's an absolutely natural right. thing to do. I'm sure that's happening now. I wouldn't necessarily know. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What was your worst day of work ever? <laughs> Uh, um, the worst days were when we had great people leaving the company and this was kind of in the earlier days but there was a period when uh, we were going, going through some really difficult kind of organizational growing pains something that I had read previously about happens to startups and you kind of figure it's like, now nah, we're gonna be fine. We're like totally. We're we're the we're yeah. We got a super happy team, and everybody feels really valued, and it's we're all growing. In the and we direction. figure things out together, and we yeah. just and then <laughs> yeah, there was a point where things were just not working, and I was this is my first time I was doing this right. I've not been a CEO before, and you kind of realize, um, and I you know to some extent I missed the boat for. Like I again thought we were going to be fine, and then things started happening. And the the red line for me was when, like, really awesome people started leaving, and that was just like, it's funny because to me, every one of those times when a person, a great person, leaves the company, it feels like I'm getting fired. There was periods where we that was just happening a lot, and that was really yeah, that was by far the hardest. Was there something you had to fix or a blind spot that you had to kind of find and kind of address? Yeah, for sure. I mean, part of it is just kind of re-appreciating what my job was in a different way. That wasn't just, I kind of saw myself like I was pretty good at solving problems. 
so I had to appreciate that not enough when being a leader. You also have to point to where the company is going and you have to communicate. And it's not enough to just know what to do. You you have to make it clear to people as well. And then, yeah, there's some things around our culture that were absolutely the things that made us successful early on that had to change once we got larger. And that was really hard to like appreciate the things that make you successful are the last things you, you you want to discard, right? But it turned out some of us. Right. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, because it's, it's like you get, it gets you that far. Exactly. And then being like, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. Yeah, exactly. I feel like most people don't make that change. It's counterintuitive in a way. Uh, yeah, it's, it's both counterintuitive. And I mean, I had to kind of figure this out myself. And then it's also incredibly painful because that means some mm-hmm. of you must cherish beliefs and people are no longer right for the company that was like an incredibly painful process both emotionally and like intellectually to force yourself to figure this out and then to proceed with what you kind of decided was the right course of action do you use like a uh, a ceo whisperer or one of these coaches that they have out here that help people through these because i mean it's obviously you're not the first person who'd go through these yeah no i mean like uh, um, for sure like i've got a pretty good support network on something around me i definitely rely on on the board for advice and help and i have other people as well and yes coaching is a i think is a pretty important oftentimes underrated aspect yeah. thank you very much for taking the time stay safe yeah you too that was fun <laughs> thank you And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Serge for taking the time, especially on one of his very few days in the office. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're staying inside, even though it is truly crazy making and really difficult. But um, hopefully we'll be out of this mess soon. But it kind of feels like this is going to be what we're doing for a while. But anyhow, I hope you enjoyed the the conversation. Like I said, I'm I'm going to endeavor to get you another one, another pod out in the next few days. So keep an eye out for that. And in the meantime, please keep the reviews coming in. It's really helpful. And I just really appreciate hearing from people what they think about the show. So go to Apple Podcasts, give five stars. It helps other people find it. You can also find me online. I'm writing about a bunch of stuff this weekend. In the newspaper, go online at thetimes.co.uk. Easier than buying a paper these days. And you can also find me on Twitter, at Danny Fortson. Or email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is all I have for you today. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.